The House of Habsburg rose from Swiss obscurity to the height of European power based on a policy of strong marriages and on consolidation of power. This week on Footnoting History, we're going to look at how the best laid plans of mice and chins often go astray. You know, every family has its genetic quirks. For instance, I look at my newborn son and see that he has my red hair, but hope that he also has all of his teeth, which is something that is not necessarily common in my family. Most of the time, these quirks are relatively harmless, and we interbreed with other families often enough that they don't appear to get worse over time. This is not a luxury that was available to a lot of the royal families of Europe over the course of the early modern period, and in particular you can see this in the Spanish branch of the Habsburg family. The Habsburgs may qualify as the most successful gold diggers in the course of history, uh, considering that they originally started as um, the holders of a very small castle outside Zurich named Habichtsburg, uh, founded by Count Radbot around 1020. Um, they came from these very small regional routes to become the Holy Roman Emperors from 1438 to 1740. That's quite an impressive track record. Perhaps their initial expansion into Austria was due to right of conquest, as Rudolf I defeated Ottokar II in 1278. But from that point on, most of the major increases in territories that fell under Habsburg rule were due to marriage. So in 1437, Albert V married Elizabeth of Luxembourg, and so they acquired the uh, rights to the crowns of Bohemia and Hungary. Uh, Albert V also became king of the Romans in 1438, so he had some politicking ability in his own right as well. Now, in 1440, Frederick III actually became the Holy Roman Emperor after a three-year interregnum. What this shows us is actually that the Habsburg dynasty was very, very powerful, but not necessarily reliant on its military for its power. It was very politically astute, and it knew when to found alliances and when to break them. It's not really a mistake either that I'm using the term it and referring to the dynasty rather than individuals because the Habsburgs were fond of working as a unit. They tended to think of themselves almost like we would think of a modern brand. By working towards the betterment of the family as a whole rather than any particular individual, the Habsburgs eventually ended up ruling quite a large portion of Europe. Their policy of advantageous weddings worked largely in their favor, with very few exceptions. Today we're going to talk about one of those exceptions in particular. That would be the marriage of the Archduke Ernest the Iron of Austria to Kimbergus of Masovia in 1412. Kimbergus was an interesting woman in her own right. She was a scion of the Masovian Piast family. She was known for her strength. Legend has it that she could drive nails into the wall with just her hands, and she could crack nuts without any tools. I bet she was a lot of fun at parties. In addition to that kind of strange assortment of uh, traits to be known for, she introduced something else into the Habsburg line. This wasn't readily apparent in the first generation, Frederick III, 
third was her son and did not show any unusual characteristics. But her grandson, Maximilian I, notably the Holy Roman Emperor, the King of Germany, and the Archduke of Austria, uh, started showing signs of a rather pronounced chin. Now, the technical term for this is mandibular prognathism, and it does show up in other branches of the Piast family as well as the Spanish Habsburgs. It wasn't a huge problem yet, and Maximilian I's son, Philip the Handsome, in order to earn his epithet, must not have been affected too terribly. However, Maximilian also made an error in judgment when he married his son, Philip the Handsome, to Juana the Mad of Castile and Aragon. Madness is something that would show up again and again and again in the Habsburg line. This marriage was perfect politically. Their son, Charles V, held vast amounts of land in the Netherlands, in Spain, in uh, the Holy Roman Empire, and thus the power of the Habsburg family was growing exponentially. However, at this point, the genetic issues were becoming difficult to ignore. Portraits of Charles V vary widely in the size of chin they portray, and this may indicate Charles V's growing power. Uh, Younger portraits tend to show a much larger, heavier chin than later ones. This is kind of a good sign that, you know, those in power can kind of determine what their image is going to be. Along those same lines, you start to see growing fashions of large lace cuffs around the neck and also uh, facial hair, pointed facial hair like goatees and um, manicured beards that could easily hide the expanse of bony mass underneath them. Such is the power of the king. These trends continue with Charles V's son, Philip II of Spain. The presence of this chin, however, may help explain Elizabeth I of England's hesitance to accept his uh, offers of marriage, though she probably also was very, very well aware of the Habsburg absorption rate for crowns. Besides, she wasn't above using fashion as camouflage herself. At this point, the House of Habsburg probably made its classic blunder. Philip II's successor, Philip III of Spain, married his cousin, the sister of Ferdinand, the Holy Roman Emperor. Now, I'm not sure if any of you guys got as obsessed with genetics and playing with Punnett squares in biology as uh, as I did when I was in high school and early college, but the idea of marrying a cousin in a line that has some genetic abnormalities doesn't necessarily seem like the strongest, most sensible policy. However, that's sort of the advantage of modern science. It turned out about as well as you might expect. Charles II of Spain, now, yes, he is actually the great-grandson of Charles V, Charles V being the fifth Holy Roman Emperor of that name, whereas Charles II is the second king of Spain named Charles, was a bit of a tragedy. His jaw was so large he had problems eating. He was mentally deficient. Rumor has it he was incapable of producing an heir. And so the Spanish line of Habsburgs died with him. At this point, Europe exploded. 
Charles had declared Philip, the Duke of Anjou, his great nephew, as his heir, followed by Philip's brother Charles, the Duke of Berry. And only then, if those two declined, only then would it go to the Archduke Charles of Austria, officially a Habsburg rather than a Bourbon. In the wake of the Thirty Years' War and in the face of the overpowering might of Louis XIV on the throne in France, the rest of Europe was hesitant to acknowledge the potential combination of the crowns of France and Spain. Despite several offers to completely renounce claims to the French throne, war broke out. From 1701 to 1714, the powers of Europe fought not only in Europe, but across all of the colonies. And at the end, the solution was almost exactly what was initially stipulated by Charles II. Philip became Philip V of Spain, and that dynasty has remained in and out of control in Spain ever since. The Austrian branch of the Habsburg line did not fare a whole lot better. It went extinct in 1780. On one hand, it is very impressive to see one policy form over the course of several centuries an incredibly powerful and long-lived dynasty. On the other, it's perhaps a reminder that even the best policies probably need to be reevaluated from time to time and not necessarily blindly adhered to. Endogamy is what let the Habsburgs grow and prosper as a family, but it's also what did them in. Perhaps the take-home message here is that the occasional drop of commoner blood strengthens the resolve and the resilience of one's genetic line, even if it doesn't necessarily help one retain any crowns. Then again, it certainly didn't hurt the Tudors. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find further reading suggestions related to this week's podcast. You can also like us on our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter, The History Footnote. Join us next week when we'll be talking about the Spanish conquest of the Aztecs. Until then, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. See you next week!